the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we'll talk about how racism and inequality actually affect our health outcomes here in America. An article in the New York Times Magazine details the ways that institutional discrimination leads to more perilous life circumstances for African Americans, and as a result, more suffering and death. Author Linda Villarosa joins to discuss next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It's such a cliche to say that the children are our future. Maybe such a cliche that it has no real meaning in our language anymore. And one of the reasons that it doesn't have much meaning is because we really don't care about children. At least not equally. From a policy perspective, from a cultural and political perspective, it's hard to say that we put children and their interests at the center of our attention. And part of the reason that we know we don't care about children is because we also don't really care about their parents, at least if they're African American. In Michigan, for instance, African-American babies are three times more likely than white babies to die within the first year of life. Think about that. Three times more likely. Even more startling, African-American women are nearly two times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related causes. More than 60% of those deaths have been found to be preventable. There are things we could be doing, things we could change that would bring those numbers down. And this isn't unique to Michigan. These trends are remarkably similar nationwide. How we treat our children is a reflection of how we manage adults. It's a reflection of the opportunities that we give them or don't. So it's no surprise that black and brown Michiganders face much starker structural and interpersonal challenges. We're more likely to breathe unclean air and to drink unclean water. We're also more likely, of course, to be outcasted in integrated spaces. Uh, things like microaggressions, slights, or comments that make us feel like we don't belong or are not good enough actually show up in our health data. They manifest in our bodies. They lead to stress and weight gain and a general anxiety about where we are allowed to be and who we are allowed to be. They lead us to question whether we belong in the only country we've ever known. And so the health outcomes that we see that are so starkly different for African Americans and other people of color are really about in many ways, the things that are not equal in our country, the things that set us aside or treat us differently. Linda Villarosa is a journalist, educator, and author who has written a lot about this topic. She recently wrote a book called Under the Skin, and in it, she talks about how preserving our health is not our responsibility alone. It lies in the hands of the collective as well. It's part of the decisions of our policymakers and organizations, and even of you, the folks who are listening to this program right now. How we treat each other, the things we say, the things we do, all of these show up in our health outcomes. Linda Villarosa is here to talk about what that looks like, 
what we can do about it, and how individual self-help solutions are inadequate to solve even our individual health issues. Linda Villarosa, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. So good to be here with you. So you start your book with an incredible fact, and it's a fact that I don't think is going to surprise a lot of people, but I want you to dive a little deeper into it than we tend to. So America spends enormous sums on medical technology and all the other kinds of things that go into our healthcare system, but we lag wealthy peer countries in terms of life expectancy rates and infant mortality rates. Talk about why that's so and how that connects to this theme that you have been really interested in for a long time. Uh, well, first, it's not just infant mortality and life expectancy. It's also everything in between, mm -hmm. which includes basically every um, major illness and, as you um, mentioned, maternal mortality as well. And I think that right now we look at those health outcomes as a mystery. Why would such a wealthy country have such poor health outcomes um, connect, you know, related to other wealthy countries? And instead of looking at it as a mystery, that it's kind of the answer is hiding in plain sight. It's um, the inequality and discrimination in society and as well as in the healthcare system itself that affects people's health outcomes. And unfortunately, as you know, I've spent a lot of time researching, it especially affects people of color, particularly black people. Yeah. So we often talk about uh, the need in America to help yourself and be responsible for yourself. Um, and I think it's difficult sometimes to understand in the context of that cultural imperative, how institutional structures and inequalities play out in the health outcomes of Americans. Uh, lots of people, I think, would look at these numbers that I was talking about in the open and that you're writing about and say, well, people need to take better care of themselves. People need to do more to make sure that they and their children are healthy. Why is that the wrong way to think about these things? Uh, give us uh, give us a primer, I guess, on the the idea that individual action just is not enough to counter these structural inequalities. And um, just to be clear, I thought that um, early in my career and through much of my career, I thought that was the answer. If individual people did better. Um, knew better and did better than the health outcomes, as particular black people would change. And I think it was a long learning curve for me to say, no, that is not the only answer. People should do better and um, take responsibility for their health. But that is not the only answer because there's something about society that um, creates poor health outcomes. It's something about how we're treated in society, but also about how we're treated in the healthcare system itself. And that is, there's so much evidence around that, that black people, other people of color, but especially black people do not get treated equally. And um, it, it's all ages of people and it's all kinds of going into a system with all kinds of health um, concerns. And so if you're only telling people just do better and the health outcomes of black people and the country itself will change, then that's the wrong approach because it's limiting. And it also puts too much onus on individual people without looking critically at the institutions um, and structures of the U.S. society. Yeah. So let's talk about the ways in which our listeners here or, or anybody might identify the ways in which these institutional structures are having such a negative effect on, on, on health outcomes. If you are somebody who doubts that this is the reason for the disparities, for instance, that exist between health outcomes for African-Americans and, and other Americans, uh, where would you look to see that that's so? I think the most obvious is in infant and maternal mortality. And that's what struck me. 
I was reporting on um, maternal mortality, especially black maternal mortality in 2018 for the New York Times Magazine. And the statistics that struck me was that the U.S. is the only country, only wealthy country, where the number of women who die related to pregnancy and childbirth is rising. The disparity is three to four times black women um, experience death or near death three to four times more often. And then what really hit me was even um, for a black woman with a master's degree or more, she is more likely to have a poor birth outcome, including her own death, than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So that speaks to something different from you're just not doing the right thing, you're not taking care of yourself, because educated people you know, know how to take care of themselves, and education also is a proxy for um, health care coverage. So if you're telling people just do better and not saying what's going on in the system that's causing these deaths or near deaths to a woman on what should be the best day of her life, then you're um, approaching the problem from the wrong angle. And talk about some of the things that affect maternal health and and infant health, uh, the, the, the barriers uh, even outside the healthcare system that make it more likely that uh, an African-American infant born will face all kinds of health challenges or that that infant's mother uh, may die from complications of, of the pregnancy. What is it about our lives uh, that, that make that so? What um, One of the theories, and it used to be kind of a theory, now it's moved to being a concept because it's so well documented, is weathering. So in America, if you are a black person, another person of color, but particularly black people, if you have to deal with discrimination day in day and day out, it causes a kind of premature aging, accelerated aging, and which is um, called weathering. That's the term. And it's sort of the concept is the same way a storm weathers a house, it knocks the paint off, it chips, you know, the shingles fall off, the windows break. And that's the effect of living in America is like a house in a storm. But also the twin side of it is we also weather that storm the way a house is still standing, even if it's not in good shape after. Um, and that it shows up in birth outcomes. So if a woman, a black woman specifically, is has to deal with day-in, day-out discrimination, when she gets pregnant and during um, childbirth, that is like an additional stress test to the body. So that's why one of the reasons why those poor birth outcomes. The second reason is discrimination in the system itself. And I was surprised, actually, to see it firsthand when I was reporting in 2018 in New Orleans, and I knew about the studies that say, for example, a black woman is much more likely to meet her physician for the first time when that person is delivering the baby. Mm. So that means you, ha you don't know that doctor. And that's exactly what happened when I was attending a birth of a black woman, and I wrote about it. And that's one of the many ways um, that unequal treatment shows up in birthing. But there are, you know, so many studies that look at how we as black people are just not treated the same when we enter the healthcare system. So those are two reasons where one has to do with societal racism and discrimination. The second is discrimination in the healthcare system itself, which affects our birth outcomes. I'm talking with uh, Linda Villarosa, contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and author of Under the Skin, the Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. We're talking about disparities in health outcomes for African Americans, other people of color, and other Americans, and where those health uh, disparities find their roots, what causes uh, these really different uh, eventualities for uh, Americans, depending on what color you are, where you live. Uh, we're talking about institutional structures that perpetuate inequality and cause some of those outcomes. Uh, we're talking about uh, the access to the healthcare system in this country, how different it is depending on your ethnic background and what effect that has on health outcomes. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Uh, call and tell us, how does interpersonal 
racism affect your daily life? Uh, if you're African-American, if you're another person of color, talk about the ways in which the inequality that frames so much uh, of our society and culture still looks. Uh, what does it look to you, like to you on a daily basis? What are the things that you notice uh, that are attributable to these inequalities? Uh, also give us a sense of what your interactions are like with our healthcare system. Have you had your pain minimized, for instance, or dismissed by colleagues or physicians? Uh, has this had deep consequences maybe for you later on in life? Uh, talk about access to clean air and clean water, something that we're very familiar with, challenges we're very familiar with here in Southeast Michigan, uh, depending on where you live. Uh, are you somebody who's concerned about your health outcomes because of the pollution that you live near. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's start today with Ryan on the east side. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Um, so I, I have a few instances that I would like to talk about. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, I'll, I'll start with my wife. So my wife, uh, about a year or so ago, she had a, a fracture in her foot, went to multiple, um, went to multiple doctors, emergency rooms and whatnot. And they just told her here, it's just take some pain meds. Uh, she finally went to one, they gave her an x-ray and then they realized it, that her foot was actually broken. Uh, second scenario again with my wife. Um, my wife, we, we have three children, um, with her first two deliveries, uh, the, the initial OB, OBGYN, who was a white male, was not present for either one of those births. Hmm. So she decided to not have him as an OBGYN again. She found a black woman and that black woman was there for our, uh, very chaotic, uh, cesarean birth of our third child. Um, for myself, uh, I was recently diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, the diagnosis came from the same um, medical clinic that 10 years ago when I was having these same symptoms completely missed the diagnosis and misdiagnosis, gave me a misdiagnosis of, uh, of carpal tunnel syndrome which wow. is completely not, not, it's not know, the same, it, right? Yeah. And I may have had carpal tunnel uh, along with that, but never was I given an MRI to figure out the, the issues that I was having with my nervous system caused by my brain. Um, and, and lastly, and I know I've got to get out of here very quickly. Uh, we were speaking about um, places where we might not feel accepted. Um, I've had incidences at the opera house, um, taking my kids to dance class where, you know, I was looked at as, as clearly I did not belong and I was followed by a parent and had security called on me. Mm. Um, but also, you know, my, my, my child goes to my, my old, my youngest son goes to U of D Jesuit. I have very recently, um, had a, had incident where I, uh, was going into the building just as I normally do going to the, to the restroom. And I was approached by a, a staff member, not security. Cause I'd already talked to them. Um, they, they were wondering what I was doing there mm. clearly because I am a, a younger black male. They thought that I didn't belong. Wow. Wow. Um, this, this incident was brought, brought to their attention and I, it was such a big deal to them that I, I actually ended up seeing an arbitrator. Um, and of course, the arbitrator still sided with the school and didn't see that there was any racial uh, connotation to the incident. But but clearly there was, and it made me extremely uncomfortable. And it's one of the reasons why I really don't like to step foot inside of a building because I'm paying you guys to to teach my child. If you're treating me like that, how are you treating my child? Right, right. Uh, Ryan. Uh, I, I'm sorry for all of. The things that you've been talking about, but especially for your experience at, uh, at U of D Jesuit, which is my alma alma mater, also my son's now alma mater. Uh, it's a place that I uh, have deep ties to, and I'm very disappointed to hear about the the incident that you had there. And and uh, again, very sorry for 
um, for the way it made you feel. But I'm glad you called and and shared these things with uh, Linda Villarosa and with our audience because I think they are the kinds of experiences uh, that African Americans and people of color have uh, have all the time, um, and and they frame the way that we go through life and they frame the way our bodies react uh, to our lives. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We are going to get Linda Rosa to respond to what Ryan just told us about, uh, the things that, uh, that have happened to him and his wife and his family. We also are going to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Wardell in Detroit, uh, Athelia in Detroit, we'll get to you next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. And again, you can go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Talking with Linda Villarosa, who is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and author of the book Under the Skin, The Toll, Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. We're talking about health outcomes, uh, the way that structural inequalities and racism affect health outcomes for African Americans and other people of color in our country. Of course, we want to hear from you. Tell us, if you're a person of color here in Southeast Michigan, what that looks like in your daily life. What does inequality look like and make you feel like in your daily life? And tell us about your experiences with our healthcare system. Do those inequalities play out in the way that you feel that you're treated by the healthcare system? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in our show that way. Linda, we just heard from Ryan on the east side of Detroit uh, a number of incidences uh, where he felt as though uh, he and his wife and his child were being treated differently because uh, they were they were African American. Um, in some of his examples, I mean, he was talking specifically about healthcare um, and and different treatment that he feels like that he he received. Um, but but again, I, I want to get to the to the space of how we know. I think there are a lot of people who hear stories like that and they say, well. Maybe it was something other than race, or maybe this was just a misunderstanding that uh, that leads to this kind of outcome. I want to talk about whether that matters and why, why, for instance, it's so important to focus on, I think you could hear in Ryan's voice, the, the kind of strain and anxiety that these, that these things cause, and that even if they aren't intentional, examples of inequality that's uh, that strain and then anxiety are what you're highlighting they're what you're pointing to as proof that this has this has an effect on people's uh, on people's lives and on uh, the health outcomes that we all rely on Uh, well first to ryan i'm so sorry that happened and hope you get um really wonderful and fair and equal care for your um, your MS. First, um, when you're talking about the kind of micro slash macro aggressions that happen when you're a black person and you go to all white, kind of mostly white spaces, that's real. And that means that each time something that happens to you that's unfair, that makes you feel bad and bad is terrible, then your body changes. So your heart rate goes up, your um, your blood pressure rises and your stress, um, co- the stress levels of your body, those hormones rise. And that's good if it happens occasionally. It's protective. But when it happens over and over, it wears away at the systems of your body and causes a kind of accelerated aging. Mm-hmm. And um, the second is part of the reason I did this book was to lift up these experiences that people are, black people mostly are 
talking about in the healthcare system and saying, no, you are not imagining this. This has been well documented that we are treated differently in, um, the, in the medical system. And um, the study that I point to was a 2002 study, government-funded study, and uh, it was carried out by government officials called Unequal Treatment. And it looked at 483 other studies and found out that without a doubt, Black people and other people of color, but black people especially, are treated worse in the healthcare system itself that is supposed to do no harm. Hmm. And and what is it about the healthcare system, for instance, that would lead to? I mean, Ryan's description of the misdiagnosis of something as serious as MS. Um, why is it? that these missed diagnoses are so prevalent for African-Americans. I mean, we hear these stories all the time. What is it about our healthcare system that misses the, the clues that would lead them to, to, to treat African-Americans uh, in a more effective way? Well, I think that just like the rest of society, the healthcare system also is um, damaged by longstanding stereotypes of black people that are, you know, invade your judgment. So if you are, you know, it's implicit bias is what it's called. And so if you're somebody who is, you know, treating someone who's not like you, you can't help but fall back on the kind of stereotypes that have long pervaded society at large, that black people are, um, instead of needing care and treatment, are dangerous or um, are uneducated, even when we are educated. So that beginning with someone like Serena Williams, she couldn't even get, you know, fair treatment um, for an ailment that she understood. And she tried to say, wait, I have this thing when giving birth to her child a few years ago. And she was ignored. So if someone like Serena Williams can't even get equal treatment, then it's kind of alarming about what happens to the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. Again, Ryan, I really appreciate the call uh, and your forthcoming recounting of the things that have happened. And again, I'm very sorry for 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 all of them. Um, let's go next to Athelia in Detroit. Athelia, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. You are starting to get my attention these days. Uh, <laughs> more than more not not more than other days, but. <laughs> just seems like you're hitting a little harder than you normally do, which I really appreciate because I watch you and Nolan go at it too. <laughs> and it's and it's interesting because you manage it with such finesse. That's the word I have to use because I'm like I would have gone off many times. <laughs> but anyway, we're two different kind of people. I'm a rebel, and you're a very moderate, you know, direct to the point kind of journalist on certain key issues. And I appreciate your 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 non-emotional stance and how you manage it. But um, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting up with Linda De La Rosa. I think it was through social media. I can't remember Linda because I thought you were Hispanic, but then I know that you were black. You just happened to have a Hispanic name. And I was just so immersed with your uh, directness and your candor about this mental illness that is affecting and permeating African-Americans in America since we've been here. And um, as a professional in a specialized industry called the design industry, they're into the one and done syndrome thing. You know, they'll find one super Negro and they'll place us in the office at, for example, GM Design Center, just using that as an example. And they're like, well, we're all set. (laughs) We got her. We got the one. And they go through so many things trying to be that person. I mean, mentally, Hmm. exclusion, rejection, you know, lower pay by $10,000 type stuff. And because one of my colleagues is that person. And so we're just like having real conversations these days in the in my profession about lack of contract opportunities for professional black-owned firms even in Detroit, per se. Yeah. That's an extreme version of racism and exclusion, and it ill affects us economically and, of course, emotionally because we're trying to forge through mainstream society instead of staying in a hair salon doing hair every day of our lives. You know, we're safe because I have a friend that does that. And I used to get jealous because he was like pulling ADG in his pocket, showing me all of these hundreds of dollars of bills. And I'm like, you know, if I could just figure out something to do for black people, I wouldn't be going through all these changes. But, you know, then it's like you have to sacrifice yourself, really, 
to to be happy. And so, Linda, you are taking on a big animal, and I appreciate you because my dissertation is healing economic racism in America since mm. 2008. Mm. And so I'm just, you know, I'm paying attention to the whole scene, and, you know, I'm glad that people of your stature are talking about it from a technical and professional and statistical perspective because I don't know what we're going to do to change it. I don't know if we're going to get white people to just click on one day or maybe the 20 to 30-year-olds are doing it. And it's they're going to be the ones that are going to do it. I don't have a clue. It's I a just great know the question. money, the money's white. They're not changing it. Mm, yeah. I it's, know that. It's a great, so it's a great question. I'm really glad you called and asked that. You know, what do we do to 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 change this? And I, I, I do want you to address that, Linda. But but I also want you to address this this phrase that uh, Thelia just uh, just uttered: this sacrificing yourself uh, to be okay to, to, to manage in, in the world. I mean, that is exactly, uh, I think, it, it, it captures so perfectly this kind of weathering effect, I think, that, that, that you're talking about, where, uh, where African-Americans, uh, we, we, we do sacrifice ourselves in so many ways just to, just to keep going and get by. Mm. I'm really relating to this conversation because, like Ryan, my father was treated really badly when he went to a um, cultural event. We grew up in Denver, and it was like this all-white um, you know, space, and my father went in, and he ended up getting somebody accused him of sitting in the wrong seat. They called security. They put a gun to him and ushered him out, and it took he, – luckily, he was there with our judge friend and a minister to white folks who got him off. Of, you know, out of trouble because he didn't do anything. And then my father was also treated really poorly in the healthcare system itself and had been restrained in his bed when we went to visit him. And I was like, what happened here? And what I remember is my father had high blood pressure and we were always saying, dad shouldn't have any salt. We've got to really watch his diet. But no one said anything about his stress levels, about the stress levels of just day-to-day coping in his job, in just trying to socialize, in trying to get health care. And after he passed away, I always thought of that because he was the one person in the family who had high blood pressure. And I wondered what was the extent to which stress, everyday stress, um, uh, made his health worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Athelia, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's take one more call here. Uh, Shelton in Detroit. Shelton, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. I was calling because, I'm sorry, I'm outside, so you might be having some trouble hearing me. Let me That's okay. Go ahead. I apologize real quick. Bottom line is talking about the health issue, health disparity, uh, disparity. Um, I was actually, I'm a healthy, uh, near 60-year-old black man in um, Detroit. I've uh, been doing martial arts for 50 years, very, just amazingly blessed with good health. However, I had an issue just last week that um, landed me in Beaumont um, emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out that um, everything is normal, and then all of a sudden I'm taking my, I, I do a lot of vitamins and supplements. All of a sudden, I'm finding myself, you know, having um, projectile vomiting and some other issues. I won't go any further, but just GI issues. Bottom mm-hmm. line is, um, my daughter took me in because she was concerned that I was having um, potentially kidney stones. And so I went in for that. I sat in um, emergency for six hours before I was waited on. I understand. Well, not before they, before they actually took me back to a room. I understand things are busy. I get that. However, um, they do all the tests, and bottom line is they didn't. They wouldn't listen to me. Um, the urology came in. Um, they did their test the next morning. They came in and said, "Okay, check this, that, another. Everything looks fine. This is a little, you know, a little concerning. But truthfully, it's not concerning. It's just a little. It's just you know, it's a little statistically off from the norm, but no issues." Same thing with GI. They just said, okay, but look, you need to come back and do the normal test. Now, all of that said, the attendee came to see me once. I finally said, look, no one is here. I've talked to everybody. Why am I still being held? Mm. They said, well, they couldn't come up with a diagnosis. Fine. I talked about this before. I think it could be the probiotic I took. 
And, of course, everybody kind of frowns about that, but I do the research. I know I'm a layperson. My ex-wife is a doctor. I get I'm a black man. I'm a layperson. However, it doesn't mean I don't read and do my research. And there's quite a bit of information that's going on right now that says that you have to be careful of how much of it that you take. And there's so much that we just don't understand about that whole biome. Bottom line is they would not listen to me. Finally, I talked with the nurse manager. They went back and forth to the tending, still nothing. Finally, I got the um, the house doctor, and it took him three times, only after I logically explained to him that, okay, my white count was high when I went in. I had one fever that was 1 of 1.8, but it's only because I told him to show me the records of this. And then I said, okay, well, if that's the issue, then 24 hours, there's nothing magic about that. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and do another blood test now. And, um, and, and yeah. I mean, it sounds like you ultimately got them to listen to you, but but I guess what what I'm picking up here is that theme over and over. There you go, uh, Shelton, which is that you didn't feel like they were listening to you that that uh, they weren't responding to what you were telling them about and, uh, what was going on with you. And, and I, I think had, that hits really, really at the center of of this conversation that we're having, which is, um, you know, the, the response, the outside response to, um, to the signs or the symptoms that we as African-Americans might show or express when we go in to interact with the healthcare system. Shelton, I really do appreciate the call. Uh, Linda, I want to give you a chance to respond to, to, to what Shelton's telling us here about not being heard. Um, I think that's a common experience. I also, in the book, I tell this story of a young medical student, black woman named Madeline. And between, she graduated from college and then she was going to medical school. And she thought she prepared the summer before by working in an emergency room, shadowing a doctor. And the one thing she was really excited to do was to really learn to listen to patients. That was her thing. I'm gonna learn to listen to patients. So here's this black woman, shadowing the white doctor, and she said by the end of the summer, she was so frustrated because the man wasn't listening to anyone. He was just shuffling people through, not listening, and she could see the frustration around, you know, on the patients that they were seeing in the ER. And what I love about this story is she said, I'm never going to do that. That's not going to be me as a doctor. And now she's probably, I think she's in her third year of medical school in Louisiana, and she started an anti-racism, anti-implicit bias training program to help other medical students understand and also, you know, not go into the profession in sort of like these old school, not listening to patient way. And I really appreciated her and her telling me that story because we need to have a new generation of physicians, no matter what race they are, who listen to patients, who don't let their prejudices that, you know, may be harboring in the back of their brains affect the treatment they give people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Linda Villarosa, it was really wonderful to have you here on the program to talk uh, about your book and, of course, about this issue of uh, institutional inequality. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, and thank you to everyone who called in. I really appreciate hearing your stories. Yeah. Okay, we are going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about health, but we're going to turn the discussion a little to talk about the monkeypox outbreak and why it's now declared a public health emergency here in Michigan. Dr. Natasha Bagdazarian, who is Michigan's chief medical executive, is going to join us to tell us what's going on. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Americans have been through a lot to protect themselves against health scares recently, and we're still technically in the coronavirus pandemic, even though it's much milder for the vaccinated. 
But viruses don't really care about our feelings or beliefs. They just want to transmit themselves from one body to the next. And now there's another virus we have to be worried about. It's called monkeypox. It is now a public health emergency because the number of cases is increasing very fast and the symptoms can be severe, even though there haven't been any deaths linked to it yet here in Michigan. To talk about what monkeypox is, how concerned we should be about it, and how to protect against it, we've got Michigan Chief Medical Executive uh, Dr. Natasha Bagdasarian here with us. She joins us from time to time to talk about how we respond from a policy perspective to public health threats. Dr. Bagdasarian, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. I'm going to start with what monkeypox is, what the symptoms are, and why it was declared uh, a public health emergency here in Michigan. Well, the monkeypox virus has been around for a while. This is not a a brand new virus uh, in the same way that COVID-19 was. This is a virus that we have had a chance to understand um, because it has been circulating in places like West Africa and the Congo Basin. Um, It is a virus that typically causes symptoms like fever, swollen lymph nodes, and a rash that can actually be quite painful. Um, The rash starts out as small um, bumps, turns into blisters, fluid-filled blisters, which then eventually crust over and fall off. But that whole process can take up to four weeks, and people can be um, at risk of transmitting this virus to others while they have this rash. So, um, when we talk about transmission, we're really talking about close transmission. We're talking about skin-to-skin contact, close um, face-to-face contact, or contact with infected bedding and linens and things like that. Um, so that's a little bit of a background about this virus. Yeah. And uh, who's most susceptible to get this? Where are we seeing these cases show up? And what should we be doing to try to protect ourselves against it? Um, Well, I think that those are really good questions because um, who has been affected and who um, is um, who who can get this virus are are sort of two different questions. So when we look at the global characteristics of, of this monkeypox virus outbreak and when we look at the characteristics of cases in the United States and in Michigan, it has predominantly been. Um, individuals in the MSM community. That's the men who have sex with men community. And that is just because of the way that the virus has um, gotten into sexual networks. But when we talk about who is at risk, I think it's very important to emphasize that this is not necessarily a sexually transmitted infection. It can be transmitted in that way, but it can also be transmitted through household contact. It can be transmitted um, through sharing contaminated linens. So I think that we need to make sure that this is not something where we are only focusing on the MSM community Mm -hmm. um, and that we are removing some of the stigma so that folks know it's transmitted in a variety of ways, um, not all sexual, and and that we need to be sort of uh, looking at risks across the board. And how do we protect against this? Uh, Should we all be getting a vaccine uh, to protect against monkeypox, or are there other things we should be doing as well? Well, I'll talk a little bit about the individual um, things you can do to protect yourself, and then I'll talk about what we're doing as a state. So on an individual level, I think one of the things I want to stress is that if you're having close contact with someone, um, whether it's um, hugging, intimate contact, household contact, it's important to know whether those folks are symptomatic. I think it's good to ask if those around you are experiencing symptoms like fever, like a rash. Um, If you do um, have a a close contact with um, a rash that's concerning to you, avoid contact with that rash. Um, Avoid any direct skin-to-skin contact and, and use precautions. Um, if there's a chance that someone around you could have monkeypox. And that would be things like, of course, distancing, not sharing any of the same um, common household items. And um, and then, of course, you know, masking up if you're going to be in, in close contact with someone. So I think talking about health 
and talking about the symptoms of those who are in close direct contact with you um, is an important first step. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you are an individual who has fever and large lymph nodes and a rash, um, and, and you're concerned that you could have monkeypox virus, I think it's very important that you stay home and avoid um, transmitting that virus onto other people. Yeah. In terms of what we're doing at the state level, um, we have a multi-layered approach to monkeypox. And we're really in a phase of what we call containment. We're trying to contain the virus from transmitting widely. And so the first layer of that is broad-based testing. So we need to make sure that the general public, that our clinical providers across the state are aware of the signs and symptoms of monkeypox so that folks know when to seek clinical care and that providers know when to be suspicious for monkeypox and when to test. Um, Because broad-based testing is really the way that we can uh, detect and capture all cases. Um, The next layer of this strategy is what we call post-exposure prophylaxis. So we have a limited amount of vaccine in the state that right now we're using for either those who are known contacts of monkeypox or those who are at higher risk. So there, there is a, um, a small amount of vaccine that we've distributed around the state and that we are making sure gets to those who are at highest risk. Um, the next layer is treatments. We do have treatments that are effective against the monkeypox virus. Um, one medication in particular called T-pox was initially formulated for smallpox, but is effective against monkeypox. And that is available for either severe cases or for those at risk of having a severe case. And then the final layer um, in our Michigan strategy is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And that would mean really making vaccine available to everyone who wants it mm-hmm. and everyone who could be at risk for monkeypox. Unfortunately, the amounts of vaccine that have been distributed by the federal government to date are not enough for us to get to that final layer in our strategy. And we're hoping for more vaccine doses in the near future. Yeah, yeah. So I I wonder if you can talk a little about what we've learned during the COVID-19 pandemic that maybe is playing out here with this this new uh, threat, and uh, as you point out, it's not a new disease, but uh, the threat of it seems uh, more outsized now than before. But are there things that we're more prepared for, I guess, or, or, or doing more smartly because we've had almost three years now of, of trying to, to deal with COVID-19? I think in public health, we have learned the importance of transparent communication and making sure that we are, if anything, over communicating to the public and really um, making risks well known to the public. Um, I think that communicating uncertainty is also really important. I don't think that um, that uncertainty was communicated in a in a great way early on in the COVID-19 pandemic. But I will say that while there are lessons learned, um, it's a it's a difficult spot for public health right now because people are really tired. They are tired of thinking about infectious disease threats. They're tired of, of being distanced and and not partaking in activities they want to partake in. And so this is a difficult time for public health messaging about a new threat. Yeah. It's hard to get people to really focus on it the way they probably, they probably should. Um, I want to change the subject just a little and talk about this new mental health crisis hotline. It's 988. uh, And uh, I I would love for you to explain how this is being used and why it was rolled out by the Biden administration. You know, I think that overall, we have seen not only a worsening mental health crisis in the the United States, just um, for all reasons, but I think that with the COVID-19 pandemic, we really saw things exacerbate. We saw isolation and loneliness and anxiety and depression all um, become bigger issues than they had been before. And so um, while I can't speak specifically to, to the hotline, what I can say is I think that all of these steps are really crucial to addressing um, mental health and the mental health crisis that we're having in our country right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also wonder if you can talk about whether 
we are overreacting to things like monkeypox because of COVID, right? Like, uh, uh, are we are we hyper vigilant in a way that maybe I don't know, maybe is not um, is not likely to, to to produce the outcomes that we think because we're 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 losing people. I, I guess is there is there the fear of that? You know, I don't think that we are being hyper vigilant. I think um, if anything, it's harder to get people um, excited or interested in a new public health infectious disease threat right now. So, um, you know, I I don't think that the risks or the concern about monkeypox are being exaggerated. I think if anything, um, we would have, um, I think, garnered more public Mm. interest if this had happened three or four years ago versus now. I I think that we're just in in a really difficult place where um, people are tired. Yeah. Um, people have not yet, you know, gone back to all of the activities that they uh, missed out on over the last couple of years. I think that um, there's a lot of playing catch up. People want to travel. People want to, you know, go to big events um, that they haven't been doing over the last couple of years. And so I, I don't think that any of these risks are being overstated. I think it's just a really hard time to sort of get people to um, be interested so in another yeah. public health threat. Okay, Dr. Natasha Bagdazarian, Michigan's chief medical executive. It's always great to have you here to educate our listeners about what's going on in public health in our state. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about Detroit's tax structure. What are some of the possible problems with it and what the best ways might be to incentivize economic development while including long-time residents' concerns more in the gains? Really important conversation about the future of our city. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.